Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business. Dr. Bob Arnott, he is a show favorite. He's a personal favorite. You know, and I have recurring guests, but uh, very few of them do I put in the uh, true friend column. He's someone that we both aspire, but we're so busy to actually hang out with. I look forward to when that happens. I feel confident, uh, uh, Bob, that will happen. Uh, but I always enjoy our conversations in the interim. You do a lot. You know, uh, your work as a medical correspondent, uh, war correspondent, um, multi-time uh, best-selling author, including New York Times. You do a lot. And uh, always glad to have you on. Uh, would love you to take a minute on some of the things that you're focusing on today. Well, you're one of the most interesting ones, as we call the doubt industry. That is, you know, we have what are called uh, astroturf groups. Now, if you have a grassroots group, you know, a bunch of people really get upset about something. And they call their neighbors and their friends and they a little fundraising and they put it together and they go and they champion whether it's you know the school or a recreational path or whatever it is it was a very sinister thing which is called an astroturf group and by that they mean it looks like it's a grassroots group but it's funded by industry i had a, a friend who ran into this at a fundraiser not not long ago in one of these uh uh, climate groups came in and started yelling and screaming and breaking it up. And the same group had thrown paint on a boat and had, you know, sort of broken up the, the U.S. Open. And so, listen, the, the cause of climate change, I think a lot of us agree with. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, you know, it's funded by a group. So it looks like a lot of fresh-faced young kids out there really, you know, striving for what they believe in. But, you know, they're getting grants uh, from these groups that are uh, are influencing. So that's one example I ran into this. A very, very good friend of mine actually got, got burned by them when he was trying to, uh, uh, you know, just defend the people at this at this fundraiser. Another example is, um, do you ever have any of the uh, meatless meat? It's probably the wrong question to ask for somebody in Texas, but nonetheless, I'll ask you. I'm sorry. I lost you there for a second. Sorry, do you ever uh, eat any meatless meat? I've, I've had it once or twice. Yeah, like impossible meat. Yeah, I'd like it, dislike it. What'd you think of it? Uh, I was, uh, I thought it was okay. I didn't knock my socks off, but I, I didn't dislike it. Yeah. So what's interesting is, you know, the, these companies have done pretty well, and they'd, uh, I've looked at them in, in some depth, and you'll see that they have, you know, good vegetable proteins in there and fiber and you know it's pretty healthy for you if you're like me where I have you know I have to keep my cholesterol down they're a nice alternative a couple of days a week uh, but what's happened is that industry has come out after them with a hatchet with a lot of misinformation saying that they're may you know sort of full of toxic chemicals or that they're unhealthy for you or too full of fat none of which is true and so Here's something where it actually may affect your health. You know, you may decline to eat something that's healthy for you, eat something that's unhealthy, and it's because of a dis and misinformation. So I just find it disturbing that it may actually affect you and your family's health if you're getting disinformation. And they're really nefarious groups that have come after me in the past, fortunately a few years ago. Uh, and another one that came after... Dr. Oz, of all people, before he left to go into politics, 
I remember uh, this group came out saying he should resign from Columbia and give up the show. What a terrible person he was. And I appeared on CNN and wrote a couple of op-eds saying, look at, you know, you may think these are senior professors from Harvard and Stanford. They're calling for his ouster, but they're not. They're the henchmen of industry. These nefarious groups that are, are paid by industry to attack. And so what surprises me, even even very good newspapers like the New York Times can be fooled. You know, they'll get a press release and they go, man, that's, wow, that's incredible. We better run this without really checking their facts. And so uh, it's, it's something to be wary of. It was quite interesting. The Pope, of all people, the other day came out and said that it was a sin for journalists to spread misinformation. I wonder if he'll say the same thing for politicians. But the difference is, you know, he, the Pope may be onto something. Is because we expect politicians to lie. <laughs> we we hold journalists to a higher standard, uh, and so uh, that is funny, though. And uh, and of course, you know, he may, he probably has a case to be made. And I do have one incident with uh, uh, plant-based meat where it was fed to me at a gathering of friends, and they told me after the fact. And honestly, I thought I sunk my teeth into. Uh, you know, Angus meat. And so I, I, I have, my overall experience, I guess, have been positive. And what you're describing, by the way, is very similar to what I'm seeing going on with an attack on stevia as an alternative sweetener. Uh, I think I've seen it on monk fruit. You know, I, and I'm someone who has uh, sugar-related, uh, you know, issues. I are, believe I do, just because of multi-generationally. My grandfather developed type 2, my mom developed type 2 diabetes, and so and I saw some things that kind of indicate I may be heading in the same direction, uh, you know, borderline numbers are close to borderline numbers, it's like, I'm, no, I'm not special, why would I be exempt? So I started changing my diet, but I have a sweet tooth, I like, I like stuff like stevia, I like stuff like monk fruit, it's a game changer for me. And the choice to do it is, uh, I feel in a very healthy way, shaved a lot of uh, unnecessary pounds, like 20-plus pounds. That's great. Yeah. And my blood sugar is way better off, and a lot of the other early symptoms change. And, uh, boy, you look at, you know, you talk to people who have sugar upon sugar, canned soda in their refrigerator, saying how dangerous stevia is. And I'm like going, that's like the sweetener equivalent of cocaine in your refrigerator thanks to the refinement process. I'm like, it's bizarre. No, it really is just totally crazy how it sort of misshapes things. Here's another example. So last week, the prestigious British Medical Journal came out with a study. 20 million uh, years of following women, uh, when you added all the number of women up in the years in the study, and the conclusion was it looked like there was a risk for women taking a, uh, one of these higher risk uh, contraceptives along with an NSAID, you know, like an ibuprofen as an example. And it immediately just got beat up in the press. And you wondered, you know, is that the, the long arm of a farmer that's doing that? Now, clearly, if you take a look at this study, yeah, there were some problems. I mean, they didn't identify smokers. That could have been a risk. It was what they call a cohort study. That is a kind of looking backwards in time. But 
uh, you couldn't do it prospectively. You couldn't go to an institutional review board, board and said, we're going to give women on these high-risk birth control pills uh, uh, NSAIDs and see if they get strokes. They'd say, absolutely not. So here's a condition. You know, if you're, if you're a young woman and you're on a, you know, one of these higher-risk, higher-estrogen or different progesterone sort of uh, pills, um, you know, my, my advice would be to, to try an alternate kind of pain relief, the topical pain relief is an example, or something else rather than release. Because, I mean, it's a, I actually had a patient, young woman, 25 years old, who was on a birth control pill, had a minor stroke. I mean, it's very, very, very uh, striking. So even if there are a few of these, they're quite dangerous. But again, you just have to be so wary that, you know, a fact kind of isn't a fact anymore. You just get aware of this coming from and, and uh, what are people doing? And then, Kevin, this is my, my new pet peeve, which I find really interesting, only the same theme. When I go to friends, relatives, and family members, and as a physician who studied all of the issues, recommend a treatment, I get pushback all the time. It's like, I'm not going to do that. That causes cancer. This is terrible for you. And I think... What happens is that people watch these ads on TV. They'll say, hey, you know, here's this great new drug, and you can lose weight with it. But it could also cause, you know, your ears to fall off, your feet to fall off, you know, uh, your, your eyes to change color. I mean, you know what they're like on TV. You listen to the sure. warning. The warning to three times as long as extra drugs. So people, I, I had a patient I was treating who actually, unfortunately, passed away. And it was, you know, he, it was largely because he just didn't want to take the medications that were advised for him because he didn't trust them. And one of my own kids, you know, I, I get to give him something that says, Dad, Dad, is that, is that dangerous? Now, look, it, it's a good idea to have a, a little skepticism and ask the right questions. But I do think that there is a now an epidemic out there of people not taking medications that are incredibly helpful. You know, I tell people I'm, I'm now uh, – 75, and I uh, compete in three world championships every year. You know, I couldn't, I can't believe how healthy I am. I go out and beat the kids in you know, bike races and stand-up paddle races and whatnot. And a large part of that is having a great you know, nutrition program and a professional training program. But a lot of it is the right medications. You know, I'm on a bunch of medications, and I'm telling you, I would not be here today without them. You know, I, I think, and I don't work for the pharmaceutical industry, but I just think that, you know, it's kind of the greatest miracle there is today. Just the simplest things in medicine that can give us the most amazing quality of life. And to have that taken away from us by an unreasonable fear of side effects or by industry influences is just plain wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. It's a lot of fear mongering is what it is. It's essentially fear mongering. And, uh, yeah, and, and in a way, it seems like we are, are, and it's not just us. I'm sure these problems exist elsewhere, except, you know, our culture puts uh, medicine, medication, uh, you know, and really cutting edge education very high on the pecking order, if you will, compared to a lot of countries in Europe where socialized medicine is often the norm. Uh, not quite the same. You're not seeing the commercials. Those commercials meant to help uh, promote a specific product, maybe undermining the uh, image, if you will, of all the products. I mean, it's an interesting thought because we, we get that kind of education in a way that no other country does. And I'm using air quotes, by the way, for education. Hard to see on the radio, I know. 
Yeah, this, uh, the thing I, so I, I watch a little YouTube before I go to bed at night. I watch something on a music composition or something religious. And, you know, someone goes on, Cry this simple hack to be able to extend your hearing. Take a piece of ice and put it on the end of your nose. You know, it's just ridiculous stuff. I was working with uh, Google when they first came out with their Google Health. And the thing that interested me was how we don't really have curated references on the web. And I mean, a physician or domain expert has gone through and selected things. Because when you go and you put in a search term in Google, as an example, uh, out of the first 25 things that come back, you know, it all has to do with corporations and people who optimize the search. So what comes up is not necessarily the most helpful or the most useful. It's whatever people have paid to be able to enhance their own position. There. Now, Google's algorithms can work. You get you some pretty good answers, but you get some pretty terrible answers too. And so the, the internet is just, I mean, it's anathema for doctors. You know, you'll sit, be sitting in your office and a patient comes in with 25 pages of printed out stuff from the internet on their illness. And there's probably not one piece that would make any difference. I'll give you just one quick example. My dear mother was going to have heart surgery. And she comes back and she goes, Bobby, now, what should I use for an anesthetic? You know, what do you, what do you think about how they, I go, mom, mom, you're going to be asleep when they do this operation. You're not doing it. So you really don't need to choose that. What you need to focus on is, is this hospital going to do a good job? And there are numbers for that. That is, do they have a very low risk of a complication and a very high rate of success? And I say that to patients all the time. If you're going to have a procedure, you know, don't look into how they do it. Look into, does your local hospital have a very good success rate, a very low complication rate, and do they operate on patients at your risk level? If, say, you're a high risk, you know, if they do, then that's the place to go. So I just find that with the Internet, it just uh, it drives me crazy that people are just so full of misinformation that they defend so fiercely when you talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and really, when it comes, I love that last example. Uh, by the way, Bob, it, it really is uh, the problem of patients trying, you know, trying to be their own practitioner and uh, majoring in the minors rather than majoring in the major issues when it comes to their healthcare. It's almost like a fun distraction, but a dangerous one if you're not looking at what really matters. Well, that's absolutely right. People are just so distracted; they just miss the. Uh so if I have a very good friend who's always running around about health risks. I mean, she may be eating all the wrong foods and doing the wrong kind of exercise, but I'll get scolded for using, a, you know, a middle spatula on a pan because that causes cancer, right? And I, I think it was very, a bunch of really interesting articles about real risk, you know, versus kind of fake risk. Um, one thing I'm in favor of, you know, there's certain foods you can eat that have a very high cost in terms of greenhouse gases. And I was talking with a senior professor at Harvard last week about this. And he said, you know, people ought to realize that in addition to, say, a high cholesterol food or high sugar or not enough monk food, as you might say, that they there are consequences in terms of the environment, all these violent storms we have and heat waves we have, just even by what you choose to eat. So what I would say is our priorities are so far off. You wonder how we make any progress in terms of our society or in terms of our personal lives because we just are awash in a sea of misinformation 
disinformation uh, and and just aggressive, all-out uh, fraud. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, we have people with so much information now in a way they never have had historically, but it seems like they are less equipped on navigating it now than they ever were historically. <laughs> it's really quite bizarre to watch. You know, as a doctor, when you, you there's studies showing that if you're a doctor and you get on the internet and you go to Google and you do a search, you kind of know, for instance, I will always look at what journal is it in. You can actually search when you're looking something up to see how the journal is ranked. So if it's like number one, and it's science or nature in the England Journal of Medicine, you can kind of take that to the bank. But if it's number 8,100, and some company paid to have it published, then there's kind of no worth in it at all. So it, yeah. it is tough. And, and that's you know what I think was very so interesting with COVID, which is kind of coming back. You know, we're getting a lot of it right here in town. Uh, I have a friend who I asked for something this morning. He said, no, I got COVID. My wife has it, and she got it in the local school. So it's, it's going on like, like, like crazy. But people, they, they make these decisions based on you know, political information rather than things that could, could save their lives. And you know, I think the biggest thing, as we've talked about in the past with COVID, is just making sure that you have a really well-ventilated room. You know, open the windows. Mm-hmm. If we, and people just are just so misinformed. It's just, uh, it's sad. And and so proud of their mis- and disinformation. You know, defending it. Yeah, aren't they? It's just crazy. Yeah, in fact, the more odd their view is, which is often the most ignorant, I hate to say, the view, the more proud they are. It's really, it's almost like watching Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies. I'm showing my age. But, uh, you know, the more, she thought she was brilliant, and absolutely everyone knew she was ludicrous, but of course afraid to tell Granny, because she could even beat up Jethro. That shows you again how old I am. But um, uh, that, it, it, it's ludicrous what's going on. And I think, uh, you know, I, and I hear about media bias all the time. Republican solutions and Democrat solutions are to try to curtail um, the media, you know, and even regulate the media. By the way, that's what totalitarian regimes do. What we really need to do is work on the consumers of the news to make them better consumers. But that's a lot of hard work. But it starts with one individual at a time challenging uh, how they approach things, making sure they're reading views beyond what they believe, which seems to be very difficult to do. I'm, I'm right of center. I think you probably get at that over time. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, my diet of reading includes Washington Post and the New York Times daily. Those are not right of center. And I need to hear those in order not to be stuck in an echo chamber. Um, but yep. but those, are, those are hard things to do because we'd all rather hear things that uh, agrees with us rather than those that challenge us. Yeah. I mean, the New York Times, I mean, I love it in that they have the money to be able to cover everything worldwide. But I am distressed that they have so much, so much bias that they don't even know they have. I mean, they'll write, there was a laudatory article about some Democratic popular politician and rip apart some of the other side of the spectrum. I mean, you've got to be able to respect everybody. And you know, it makes it a much less interesting story if you can't take apart anybody on any part of the political spectrum. But I'll leave you with this. I was on a train ride last year, and there's an Italian businessman that we were chatting. And he said, you know, the problem with America is that everybody has to have a narrative. And it's a very interesting thought. That is, p- 
people are so confused and there's so much stuff all over the place that their political party or whoever they follow gives them kind of a line, a whole narrative, a story. And everything kind of fits neatly into that story. And you know what that does? It gives them a sense of calm and tranquility. Oh, I'm finally in command of all of this stuff out here. I have a narrative. Now, that narrative may be provided to you by a local clergy person or by a teacher, which is great, or, you know, by some politician or by industry. So, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in Massachusetts, and it was a hard scramble place to grow up. Everybody was so competitive, you know, we used to get beat up on the way home from school every day. It was a tough, tough, tough place. And, but we prided ourselves on being able to look and reason and listen. And I remember there was a, a very famous professor who started the Juilliard School who said, there is an ethical obligation to be fully informed as a member of a democracy. And I think that that is the best thing for understanding. You know, read left, read right, look at sources, understand it, and, and be able to take that crystalline real fact and real truth to base your life on instead of a narrative that somebody has put it together for you. You know, I don't, I would join any political party ever. I mean, I, I'm not, because I just, I don't believe in the idea that somebody has to tell you what you believe. There has to be a whole line of thought, um, probably more true on the left than the right, that you better, you better believe all of this or you're not a club member. And I just don't think that's the way we ought to live in a democracy. People have good ideas all across the political respective spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the truth is, the truth is, you know, people, both sides in our, our political system, you know, wants to go one way or another. And we're going way over. I appreciate you letting me do that because it's a really important topic. But the reality is, you know, is that the truth is usually somewhere in the nuanced area. And no one wants to be nuanced. The truth is in shades and in grays and not in bold. I hate to say it. And no one wants to go there. And uh, uh, it's so hard to achieve that. It requires a lot of work. And you're in, in the unwillingness of people to do that work is why we end up treating people who have a different worldview of ours as if they are the enemy. I mean, this is a very divided country because of this. Here's a great quote. Paul Kennedy is a professor of history at Yale. I went to a lecture of his and read several of his books. He says, you know, all the best leaders all day long, their job is to make bad decisions, right? So what he meant by that is, look, if I were to say to you, Hey, uh, you can give each one of your uh, listeners a million dollars, and I'll give a million dollars for doing it, or not. It's not a decision. Of course you're going to do it, right? That when you look at a decision in Ukraine, you know, we give them this new missile system, you know. Well, you know, it could cause a nuclear war, so it's, it could be a bad decision. So when you look at the decisions that presidents and leaders around the world make, they're choosing between two bad options. And often that's the truth. I mean, for instance, do you cut social welfare to seniors or do you cut the budget, right? I mean, they're both bad decisions. Or, or do you increase the budget, right? Increase the budget or cut social welfare. They're both kind of bad decisions. Maybe not the best example, but very important to realize that decisions aren't easy because they're all bad choices. 
They're not yeah. A against A or A against D minus. It's a D minus choice against a D minus choice. And that's why you want to be informed because, as you so eloquently say, it is in the subtlety. And that's because we're choosing between two bad decisions. Yeah, and in closing, we went way over. Thank you. Uh, my fault because <laughs> I got I got I got geeking out with you. I think that's the official name, geeking out with Doctor Bob. Hey, that'd be a good name for a show. But yeah. uh, I uh, I got geeking out with you. But I I, I want to make clear to the listener. I think this is a bipartisan problem. This is an ideological problem. It, it, it transcends both parties. Not one side is not any really much better than the other. Maybe a little bit. But it's, it's, it's not much. And I did want to give one example of how bad this is. We all now operate with this false narrative that you only have two choices. I haven't voted for either major party in a few election cycles. I, and unless something changes, I don't envision doing that. Uh, but a great example is Chris Christie, who has been by far the most eloquent and forceful critic of Trump in this presidential cycle. But on a debate stage, when asked if Trump became the nominee, would he support him? He was one of one of uh, that entire group, except for one, that said yes. He calls him a felon, a criminal, and yet he would still support him. That is a party that is really more cult-like than it is uh, a true political party. And he got similar assembly insanity on the left. Countries, I don't know how countries survived with that. With that, I love that to be your final thought as we wrap it up on that. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I mean, I, 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 I think that, you know, the right can do some stuff that's pretty dumb, and then the left can do stuff that's pretty evil. And so I'm pretty, pretty, uh, pretty aware of, of both of them. And as I say, my, my real take-home is a lot of disinformation, misinformation, fraud out there that affects your health and your family and your kids' futures. And that's why... In a democracy, you really owe it to read the very best sources across the political spectrum. I mean, I read the New York Times, the Financial Times, uh, Newsweek, Time, Washington Post, L.A. Times, you know, a whole slew of uh, papers across Europe. And in fact, the interesting idea is I, I use Google News because they'll have 25 different accounts and I'll read them, all of them. You know, yes. what if you ever think of the Middle East? You know, what does the right think down in Texas? What does the left think up in Massachusetts? And then you kind of cut through that and you got to see, get a little glimmer of the, the truth hiding in the shadows. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting about all of those is that they're using the same sources, just coming with different conclusions. That's the difference between fake news and opinion. We shouldn't be scared of opinion. We should be holding uh, journalists accountable if they go into fake news. And that happens. That really does. Dr. Bob, always love having you on the program. Dr. Bob Arnott, uh, you know, I've already introduced a great author, a New York Times bestselling author, incredible uh, background in journalism and in medicine, as well as a musician extraordinaire. We had a great segment about that. We ought to revisit your musical work as well. You are the quintessential uh, Renaissance man. Well, it's very kind you say. I've missed hearing your voice, and I just, uh, I really look forward to and love these discussions you've got to be the most intelligent and well-read host that i know and i know a lot means a lot for me thank you so much i'm kevin price stay tuned for more after this 